0: you're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter tonight. Thank you, Josh, for leading us, praise team, musicians, musicians. And we're so very grateful for you. Everything we do corporately is worship. We sing, it's corporate worship. And we hear the word preached, and that is corporate worship. And it's vital for our souls. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this evening. Lord, thank you. You've already blessed us. We're reminded tonight that indeed you are the Ancient of Days, And you're not a novice. You are eternal, and you are eternal in your perfections. And the Son of God is eternal in His perfections. The Holy Spirit is eternal in His perfections. We have a triune God that we worship tonight, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we need you to come to bear tonight as we hear the word preached from Genesis 13. Lord, may we capture the essence of Moses' goal in writing this as we hear it preached tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, describes how hot and dusty the streets were in Cairo when he was taken on his trip to Egypt to a forsaken graveyard for American missionaries. And as they're walking through the gates of that old forsaken graveyard, uh, his guide pointed to a a sun-scorched tombstone that read William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a Yale grad and was the heir of the Borden Incorporation. You know, uh, Borden milk, Borden cheese, even Elmer's glue, all of these things. He was the heir. He was a graduate from an Ivy League school, and he rejected all of it to take the gospel to the Muslims in Egypt. And after only four months in Egypt... In March, 110 years ago this month, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died four months after being on the field. And and so Randy Alcorn just kind of dusted off the tombstone, and he read these words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Well, he was taken from that forsaken uh, cemetery immediately to the Egyptian National Museum where the King Tut uh, exhibit was on display. It was mind-boggling. King Tut uh, was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands upon thousands of gold artifacts His gold coffin was found within several gold tombs. The burial site was filled with with tons of gold. You see, the Egyptians believed in an afterlife, and in that afterlife you could take all of your material possessions to be eternally enjoyed. But all of those treasures meant for King Tut's eternal enjoyment remained here and were here for 3,000 years until a man named Howard Carter in 1922 found uh, the site, the burial chamber. Now I want you to think about the contrast here between these two men. One uh, who lived in opulence and and called himself king a, a god in Egypt now resides in a Christless Eternity. The other, who renounced all the goods this world has to offer in service of the one king, is enjoying his eternal rest and reward. It was this eternal reward that had captured Abram's faith. Hebrews 11, verse 10. For he, that is Abram, Abraham would be be his name changed later, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, remember, as we come to chapter 13, it follows off the hills of Abraham or Abram's lapse of faith. Uh, There was a famine. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he went to Egypt for help, help, and all manner of trouble came upon him. How would Abram deal with his lapse of faith? He's going to go back to square one. That's what he's going to do. What you do when you have bottomed out and you have sinned against God, you've sinned against your spouse in this particular case or your neighbor... What you do in those moments says a great deal about the kind of person you are and, more importantly, the kind of faith that you have. But Abram's response is actually going to provide a new testimony for Abram, a testimony of penitence. So look with me in chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had— and Lot with him into the Negev. Now we're going to skip verse 2. We're going to come back to that. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where this, his tent had been at the beginning. So he goes back to his spiritual roots between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so he goes back to the place where he had worshipped, but also where he had made the wrong decision to go to Egypt. And God picks him up and reminds him his failure is never the final word when you're repentant. That's important for, for all of us failure and the floor, if you will, is never the final word for those who repent. The builders of the Tower of Babel had no category for that. And so when their building project fell apart, um, so did they. They had no mechanism for dealing with failure. But in Abraham's case... It was just the opposite. Abraham had these categories that were wired in him by his faith. See, as believers, we're going to fail. We're going to make poor decisions. We're we're going to proverbially proverbially go to Egypt when struggles come. We're going to exhibit the loser's lean, if we want to go back to that metaphor last week. We're going to sin. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is that when we sin, one of the marks of our saving faith is that we repent. That's Abram here, and he calls upon the name of the Lord where it all started. But in verse 7, we have Abram's new testimony, but the Lord never allows us to stay in a comfortable place long. We have Abram's new test. A new test for Abram. Prosperity. That is a test. Look with me back in verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also... "...had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock." At that time, again, reminded, this is in the midst of their enemies, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So where did they get their prosperity? It is clearly connected to their stay in Egypt. We saw that, chapter 12, verse 16. But Lot was also made wealthy by their pilgrimage in Egypt. And this prosperity, as it often does, led to strife. How would Abram handle the strife? How will he handle the quarreling? If there was this inter-tribal squabbling going on between Abram and Lot, that puts them in a vulnerable position in the presence of their enemies, the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, who actually ruled the land at this time and controlled much of the water supply. It puts them in a vulnerable position. And so Abram and, and, and Lot agree to separate. Now, he could have just sent Lot away. Uh, he was not beholden to Lot. Abram owed Lot nothing. Lot owed A- owe Abram everything. But when one, and I wish I could speak this to every brother and sister in this room, when one defers his rights, it often diffuses quarreling. Amen. Do I need to repeat that to our kids. (laughs) Furthermore, he had learned a lesson in Egypt. Now, Abram seems to have learned, at least in this instance, a contentment to trust God for his provision rather than going back down to Egypt, making a poor decision. As a result, since he was sure... That God would provide, that the the things of this world had grown strangely dim for Abram. I'm thinking about writing a song with those lyrics. I think it'll work. If God gave him that, that's okay. Abram would hold them as a steward. He had learned to hold lightly to the things of this world, at least in this particular instance. Well, notice in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. I love that. What if every church member in every church... We don't have a lot of division at Lakeview. I'm not even preaching this to Lakeview. Praise God for that. But what if every church member in every church all over the world we're to say this when there is a struggle or some kind of squabble. We are kinsmen. We are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. You're talking about faith here. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And so Abram's faith... Faith in what God's promised to provide God had already promised him abram's faith led him to an incredible act of generosity. every generous person here and we've got a bunch of late viewers who are generous it's the fruit of your faith you know God will provide you know I can't outgive God and, and that's where Abram is having received Abram's faith could now give. That's the order. He had received, and now by faith he could give. His faith and God's discipline had broken his self-reliance, and he is fastening on to God's promise. Now, he's not going to do that perfectly. Uh, We're going to see this in later chapters. His faith is not perfected. But here we see his faith on display... And he gives Lot first choice. And here's what we're going to see here. Lot's first choice is going to demonstrate the eyes of the flesh. The eyes of the flesh. We will see ourselves in Lot in some way if we're very honest with ourselves. Look with me in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw, well, that's a key verb right there, that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. And so he, he, he looks and he, he recognizes that this, this land is beautiful. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And so he sees this place that looks like the garden of the Lord, but a place, a a phrase that I skipped over intentionally. Notice this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So this place looks really good, but Moses is giving us a warning here. This was not a good choice. Lot does not defer to his elder, his elder being his uncle. He looks at the land from the heights of Bethel, which is, scholars say, 2,800 above sea level. And he chooses merely on sight. Lot takes the best for himself. And that phrase, the garden of the Lord, echoes and images, the the Garden of Eden. Eden was heaven on earth, right? And so this area, this region in which Sodom and Gomorrah was contained, as we're going to see, looks like heaven on earth, but it's actually a microcosm of hell because God isn't there. And notice as well, this land was like the land of Egypt. Now, this is important because the original, who was the original audience? Moses is writing to a people who've been redeemed out of Egypt, but boy, they have a, a tendency to look back in fondness on Egypt as they're making their way through the wilderness. And so he is writing to these people who still saw Egypt As very attractive. Lot's eyes lead him as Eve's eyes led her. Let's go back to Genesis 3. I've got it here. She saw, verse 6 of chapter 3, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Again, parenthetically, Moses says, This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Lot like Eve. This is an echo. Wanting his own version of heaven. The Garden of Eden was heaven on earth. But he wanted heaven in the here and now without God. That's what Eve wanted. She wanted heaven on her terms without God. And I would submit that this is really a paradigm of the natural person. It's even true of believers when we're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We long, I mean, we have this, this longing for what was lost in Eden, which was a type of heaven, but it's a heaven Without God in our natural state. That's what we want. That's why you hear somebody describe heaven. They, they, it's, it's almost like they want a, a, a heavenly golf course without a sand traps. Everything that they see as problematic in their universe is, the, is what they impute onto heaven, but there's very little they think about God, they say about God. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, said this there is a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven and a sanctified man and an unsanctified man the believer prizeth it above earth and had rather be with god than here but to the ungodly there's nothing seemeth more desirable than this world and therefore he only chooseth heaven before hell but not before earth. Sobering words. Well, notice in verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Don't lose that. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're going to read, we're going to be in that in chapter 19. And it's gruesome. And they have nothing on the United States. We'll get to that later in a future sermon. But notice how Moses describes the men of Sodom. But I want you to notice as well, they were allowed, these wicked men, these wicked people to inhabit a fertile area perhaps the most fertile maybe it was the most beautiful thing that you could see and that's why lot chose it they were allowed to inhabit that for a time for a season uh, you may have people that you work with and they, they they have no they have no fear of god and they seem to prosper uh, they seem to get the promotions Uh, They just seem to have everything going for them. That appears to be the case for the people of Sodom at this point. They are living in this fertile area. It is so fertile. That is what Lot chose based on his eyes. They are prospering. But I want you to hear Psalm 49, verse 12. Man in his pomp will not remain. Man in his pomp will not remain. Verse 17, for when he dies... He will be like King Tut. He will carry nothing away. So why don't you notice this progression here? I wish every... This is spring break. I'm glad the college students and the high school, I'm glad they've all taken their breaks, but I I wish every college student in the city could see this progression here. He started out looking towards Sodom. All right? That's, That's how it started. He was looking towards Sodom. Verse 10, but now notice verse 12. In verse 12, he's living as far as Sodom. He moved his tent as far as Sodom. So it began with the eyes, and now he progresses to the point where he's living as far as Sodom. Lot wanted, he still wanted Canaan, but he wanted it on his terms. All right? And so if you had asked Lot, why did you settle near Sodom with all that wickedness? He might have said, well, Sodom was wicked, but it certainly has its advantages. However, as time went on, that same spirit that brought him to the outskirts of Sodom we will bring him actually into the city. Listen to Genesis 14, verse 12. They also took Lot. This is, this is another story, chapter 14. But notice, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom. So, so by the time you get to chapter 14, he's not just looking at Sodom. He's not just setting up near Sodom. In chapter 14, he's dwelling in Sodom. You get to chapter 19. This is a progression here. Verse one the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? He holds a position of respect among the elders in Sodom, those are the ones who sit in the gate. He has respect among the citizens. And then, chapter 19, verse 14, this is where it gets really ugly. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, because of this regression that began with the eyes, his daughters are marrying sodomites. The consequences of a progression of sin that was left un checked so it began with lot being persuaded that he could live close to the inhabitants of sodom without any risk you say well i'm not like lot because i'm a believer so was lot now how do we know that peter tells us that in second peter 2 verse Seven, it says that uh, Lot, the righteous Lot, he describes him as righteous. That means he's a believer. Righteous Lot was greatly dis- distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Uh, one translation that I haven't memorized in, a New King James, I believe, says, Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the things he saw and heard in Sodom. And it all began with a look, unchecked sin that just progressed to the point where he's in the gates of the city and his daughters are marrying Sodomites. That is the fruit of the eyes of the flesh, And we're intended to look at that as if in a mirror. On the contrary, we see Abram in the eyes of faith. Look with me in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. What does that remind you of? It's the same verbs that were used of Lot. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And so earlier Lot had lifted his eyes and he saw, those same verbs here are used of Abram, but Lot only looked in one direction, (laughs) that area where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and he took the land that pleased him. It's the eyes of the flesh. Abram doesn't just look in one direction. God says to look all around. And God says, you will receive this land. In fact, Paul says that, that the promise was even greater than Abram could have conceived. In Romans 4.13, God says, or Paul says, that God promised Abram the world, the world. This was just kind of a prototype the land in Israel was the prototype of what Abram would ultimately receive the world, the new heavens and the new earth. Ironically, the area that Lot saw would have been included in the promise made to Abram, because Abram's gonna receive all of that and more. There is great irony in these words. They're meant to comfort Abram, but what is the comfort? Well, God is promising Abram something that he will never possess in his lifetime. You say, well, what kind of comfort is that? Well, it's the same kind of comfort we need right now. God is saying in effect to Abram, and he's saying in effect to us that our hope is not in the here and now. It's in another age, an age to come. So now, the lots of the world may possess, you know, what appears to be true treasure. And God is teaching us through Abram that our hope is in the world to come. Notice in verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre. Now, Mamre was a supporter and ally of, of Abram, and we'll see that next time. Which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he pitched a tent, and he built an altar. This characterized Abram's way of life and it should describe our ways of life he was a worshipping pilgrim (laughs) that's what we are he pitched a tent he built an altar that's who we are we're worshipping pilgrims this is not our home so the passage begins with worship as God restores a repentant Abram and it ends with worship Abram, the pilgrim, just passing through, and Abram, the worshiper, bearing witness. That's our calling. You don't ever, now Lot is a believer. I wouldn't believe it if Peter didn't say it. But Peter said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Lot is a believer, but his faith is so puny. He cannot, he cannot walk in the puny fate that he has. You don't ever find Lot building an altar in Sodom, in Sodom. Abram's building altars everywhere. You don't ever find Lot building an altar in Sodom. And he traded in his tent as a pilgrim for a townhouse in Sodom. He settled in Sodom and he blended in with their corruption. God help us. In Auburn Lot was clearly popular. He sat in the gates. He was popular, but he wasn't prophetic. Maybe that's where you are in the workplace right now. Maybe it's where some of our students are in the classroom. You're popular. But are you prophetic? Lot was not prophetic. And so gleaning from Abram's pilgrim perspective is a key purpose of this chapter. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who are going to the land. Um, and Moses wants to remind them not to be ruled by their, the eyes of the flesh, not to be ruled by their appetites, but to be ruled like Abram by the promises of God. Indeed, the the characters and the careers of Abram and, and Lot present sharp contrast that we are to take note of. In every respect, Lot compares unfavorably with Abram. Abram walked by faith. Lot walked by sight. I think one of the problems in the American church, I've seen these studies, God help us, where over 50% of the men in these studies watch pornography. Lord have mercy. That's walking by sight, not by faith. Abram was generous. Lot was greedy and selfish. He was worldly. Abram was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Lot made a home in a city built by man that would be judged by God in Genesis 19. But I want you to note one more contrast as we close this out. Abram's conduct with Pharaoh is to be contrasted with Abram's conduct with Lot because we're looking in the mirror when we see that. Those two Abrams, the same man, they represent what we are. We're people of faith with a strange mixture of distrust and lack of faith. His conduct with Pharaoh was a lack of faith. Uh, It was distrust his conduct with Lot, that's a man of faith. And that's why our hope is not in our piety, in our godliness, because we're too much like Abram. One moment, stunning display of faith, and another moment, a stunning display of unbelief. Our hope is in the one in whom Abram points, who never one moment of his life exhibited the loser's lean, even to the point of the cross. Second Corinthians says, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And because... He has made us rich, not in this present age, but in the city to come. We don't have to be subsumed with earthly gain. Our inheritance cannot perish, spoil, or fade, but it's kept in heaven. And it was secured by the one who was willing to be made nothing so that the lots of the world might have an inheritance that they don't deserve that's why this passage is so important for us but again we know that some of you perhaps have not trusted in this seed of abraham we want to give you an opportunity to do that so as josh and the musicians come forward isn't it remarkable how the the old testament genesis in this particular case is preparing us for christ he's preparing us for messiah and so sometimes we'll see these great acts of faith that display in some, some pale way the righteousness of the one who would come to save us. But then they have these moments of great uh, shipwrecks of their faith, which shows us that we still need a Messiah. We still need a Messiah. And those shipwrecks of faith are a mirror for us because that's who we are without Jesus. But you can come to him tonight If you will just confess with your mouth, I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, and Jesus took the judgment in my place. What a glorious gospel that is. Man could not have come up with that religion. This religion is God-given. The Son of God taking the judgment we deserve so that we might have that inheritance that our hearts long for.